I decided to extend the passage one verse, so through verse 20, 12 through uh, 20. Let us hear from God's word. This is our only authority in faith and in life, inspired by God and inerrant. Let us give our attention to its reading. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. Well, imagine that someone experiences a terrible financial tragedy, or they undergo a, a series of financial mistakes, and they are on the brink of going from a comfortable middle-class existence to losing everything that they have. If you were in a situation like this, you can imagine how tantalizing get-rich-quick schemes would become. They would seem a way, possibly, to immediately erase everything that has just come upon you, and you would feel the attractiveness of such an opportunity. I, I have to at least check this out to see if it's for real. Of course, we know that basically all get-rich-quick schemes usually have a snag. They're a scam or they're very, very unlikely to happen to any one person. But imagine that there were one which had all of the positives, the potential positives that a get-rich-quick scheme has, the opportunity to get your hands on enough finances to sort of wipe away all of your problems, and that it lacked all of the bad things that normally go along with a get-rich-quick scheme. You would be compelled to check it out, wouldn't you? An opportunity to wipe away all of those problems. I don't say this as if to say that the resurrection of the dead is some kind of get-rich-quick scheme. It wouldn't be right to paint it in that light. But the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, not only of Christ, but our resurrection, our bodily resurrection, is the linchpin of our Christian faith, the center of our faith. And not only that, it also offers so much benefit, so much good, that anyone would be a fool to not at least check it out. Therefore, because this is such a wonderful doctrine, it causes us to do at least two things, two things which I'd like to focus on this morning. It causes us to rejoice in hope and be patient in suffering. To rejoice in hope and be patient 
in suffering. In this passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul asserts the importance, the centrality of the resurrection. He talks about three things. Uh, The certainty of the resurrection. It is certain, not only Christ's, but ours. He talks about the consequences of abandoning the doctrine of the resurrection. If you do away with it, what happens? The consequences. And then finally, uh, by implication, he talks about the comfort of the resurrection. The certainty, consequences, and comfort. Easter morning would not be fitting without talking about the comfort of the resurrection. And so we will get there in just a little bit. First then, the certainty of the resurrection. Let's go to this passage together in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul begins by saying, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? What's going on here? Apparently there are some who are claiming that even if it is the the case that Christ has been raised from the dead, that does not necessarily mean that all those who are in Christ, all those who believe in him and trust in the gospel will experience the same kind of bodily resurrection as well. In other words, the problem is not whether or not Christ has been raised, but whether or not we will be raised with an imperishable and indestructible body. The apparent reason why Christ's resurrection is not in question is what Paul has just finished saying at the beginning of chapter 15. For I delivered to you what I received and what is of first importance, that Christ died and was buried in accordance with the scriptures and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And Paul points out that there are many people still walking the earth that saw the Lord, the risen Lord, visibly with their eyes. Paul was one of these people. He encountered Christ on the Damascus road. And so that's not in question. And in the Corinthian church, that was not in question. It was not whether or not Christ has been raised. People were spreading this error that just because Christ has been raised, that doesn't mean that we also will be raised from the dead. That, of course, is is not the case in our world today. The resurrection of Christ is disputed by many. Of course, the weeks, a couple of weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, we see various things on TV and in the newspapers. And I saw uh, an article this week that said 20 20 to 25% of people who identify as as Christians uh, in the UK do not believe in the resurrection of Christ. Uh, That is the, the world that we live in now. Many people dispute the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, just very quickly, a couple of comments on that, since that really is one of the things that we face. If we, look, if we think about the two readings that we uh, looked at this morning, Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 2, in those two passages, there are a couple things that we ought to consider when we consider the legitimacy and the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are many people out in the world who will say, the people who wrote the Gospels, it's not really uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or even John. It wasn't them, it was people writing probably 60 to 100 years after that. And what they were doing is they were being intentionally deceptive about Jesus. They were trying to get people to believe in this myth about his being raised from the dead. And they were promulgating this message that really wasn't true. So think with me for a minute about that. Let's think about Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, who was the first person to encounter the risen Christ? Mary Magdalene. And also Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well. 
And so if the writers of the Gospels, or in this case Matthew, was, was being intentionally deceptive and trying to spread something that he knew were not true, or whoever was writing under the name of Matthew. If he were trying to spread something that uh, were not true, trying to get people to buy into it, he would not have had Mary Magdalene be the first person to encounter the risen Lord. She was a person who had basically no social status. Back then, uh, the, the word of women was regarded as less valuable in public than men. It was not as trustworthy. There was a philosopher who was a hater of Christ and Christianity named Celsus, and he brings this up. And he talks about the Christian doctrine of the resurrection, and he calls it all into question because he said, who was the one who first saw the risen Christ? And he says it was Mary Magdalene, whom he calls a, an hysterical female. Now the question then becomes, if the, these people who were writing under these names of Matthew or Mark or Luke were trying to spread a message that they knew wasn't true, and that they knew they wanted to be accepted widely, why would they have had, in this story, Mary Magdalene be the first to encounter the risen Christ? It doesn't make any sense. But they say it because that's what actually happened. They were trying to be very, very faithful to the way it had unfolded. And that was the reason they told the story in those ways. Think about Acts chapter 2. Historians have a problem because we know around the time of Christ there were at least a dozen other public figures who arose as those who claimed to be the Messiah. And they gained several followers. And in each time, the same thing happened. They were either killed like Jesus was, or they were thrown into prison, or they vanished into uh, obscurity. And every other time that one of these messianic uprisings happened, all of the followers were left with a couple of choices. They could either go back to their normal lives, or try to find someone else to be their leader. But with Christ, we have something absolutely different. When Christ was betrayed, when he was arrested, what happens? All of, his, all of his disciples go away. Matthew tells us this. When he was arrested, they all run away. Peter, of course, is the chief example of this. He denies Jesus. He says, I don't know him. And yet in Acts chapter 2, who is the one standing up and proclaiming with confidence and with boldness and with authority the message of the risen and exalted Christ. In some way, historians have no way to account for the apostles and the followers of Jesus who had this very dramatic turnaround in their life because it goes exactly against all of the other times there was a messianic uprising in the Greco-Roman world in that time. When someone is killed or thrown into prison, the followers go away. And they never come back. But because of the message of the gospel, the apostles said that it is specifically because Christ was crucified that he is Lord, and because of his resurrection that he is the Christ, that he is the Savior of the world. Historians have no way to account for these kinds of things, and the Bible tells us these things because they are the truth. That, of course, is the challenge that we face, but apparently it wasn't as much the challenge that the Corinthians were facing. The error that had crept in was denying the general resurrection, the resurrection of everyone. So then, in a way that we, different than we would normally expect, Paul says that if there is no resurrection of the dead, look at verse 13, then not even Christ has been raised. See how he works backwards from the order we would expect. We would expect him to say, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then 
there will be no resurrection of the dead. But he does this in the reverse order. And he does it to show the close connection between Christ's resurrection and ours. In order to say that they are both part of the same reality. Christ's resurrection and our resurrection are two parts of the same event. Two parts of the same reality. Two reasons as to why that is the case. Why our resurrection and Christ's resurrection are so closely intertwined. Representation and righteousness. Representation and righteousness. Further down in this chapter, Paul will say, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Paul says this to remind us that our God works in terms of covenants and covenant heads. Because of the failure of Adam, who was appointed as the head of all mankind, sin and death had crept into the world. See, it wasn't as if God decided to create seven billion people all at once and then set them loose in the Garden of Eden, all under the same probation, all under the same terms of testing. He appointed Adam to be our representative. And because of his failure, sin and death crept into the world. It's called the covenant of creation, or Reformed theologians call it the covenant of works. But there was a second representative to come along. A second and a last Adam. And just as Adam is the representative of the human race and the covenant of creation, so Christ is the representative of all those who will believe in the covenant of redemption, or what we call the covenant of grace. The covenant of creation brings death and curse. Not because it's inherently bad, but because of Adam's failure. The covenant of grace brings restoration and life. And so what Christ wins, he wins for all of his people. Representation, very simple. Secondly, our two resurrections, Christ's and ours, are so closely intertwined because of righteousness. Righteousness, that requires a little bit more thinking. Last week we talked about how Jesus on on Palm Sunday is riding into Jerusalem as the king of righteousness. He came not to be a political activist, not to overthrow Rome, but to reveal the righteousness of God. He was doing something that was deeper and more meaningful than anyone could have imagined. And what he was doing was showing us fundamental issues about what it means to be human, about what it means to be a creature of God. To be human does not mean that you are inherently sinful. That's only a reality after the fall. God did not create us that way. But Jesus, as the righteous king, shows us what it means to be human, and he shows us why God made us. Jesus shows us that God made us to have fellowship with him, We were made to have fellowship with God. We were made to enjoy God forever. We were meant to enjoy him as we were, as we are caught up in union and fellowship with our triune God. We were meant to reflect his righteousness and his holiness as those who were made in the image of God. You see, Christ is the one who fully reveals for us what it means to be the image of God. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Christ becomes a life-giving spirit because he is righteous, because he is holy, because one who is righteous and holy as Christ is will enjoy eternal life. And thus, as he lives his life and he dies a sinner's death and he is raised again, as he represents us, those who believe and trust in him, he is a life-giving spirit. 
And we are made to share in what it means to be human. Christ restores us to the original purpose of our creation. This is something that's underway already, but it will not be consummated until the resurrection of the dead. Two reasons why our resurrection and Christ's resurrection are so closely intertwined. He is our representative and he is our righteousness. Sin and death and the curse are all part of something else. But his obedience to the Father, his obedience to the law brings forth life. He is a life-giving spirit. The resurrection is certain. And our resurrection is certain because Christ has already happened. And Christ's resurrection, we can know it will happen because we will be resurrected as well. They go back and forth. What are the consequences? What are the consequences of doing away with this doctrine? Well, Paul mentions many. He says if there is no resurrection, his preaching and our faith are both useless. They're useless. If Christ has not been raised, we are, uh, Paul was lying about God to others. He was just going around spreading lies. If Christ has not uh, been raised, then we are still in our sins. And if we will not be raised, then we are still in our sins. If we will not be raised, then those who have died are gone forever. If we will not be raised again, then we are pitiable. We are pathetic people for putting so much stock in a lie. Imagine getting this wrong. You live your whole life hoping for this thing that you believe has been promised, but it's wrong. Paul says, if this is not real, then we should be pitied by the entire earth. Paul is saying that it all comes tumbling down if you abandon the resurrection. The kids and uh, adults that sometimes act like kids. Have you ever played Jenga? Jenga, you know, the, the, the game with the blocks? You can't play Jenga with the doctrines of the Christian faith, and especially with the doctrine of the resurrection. If you go to a perfectly constructed tower of blocks and you take out the block that is the resurrection of the dead, it all immediately comes tumbling down. It goes away. And there's an interdependence of that doctrine and all of the cardinal doctrines of our faith. I read an article this week that said, the resurrection of the dead is is what children in Sunday school believe. But as you get older, you realize that science takes over and, and, and it's, it's silly to believe you need to reinterpret it. No. If you lose the resurrection of the dead, Christ's or ours, you lose everything. It's the whole point. And it's not the whole point just because, Paul, or just because God wants to give us something that's like the best birthday present ever. It's not just to endow us with riches. The resurrection of the dead is about is about a sovereign and a mighty creator God who is himself good and who himself made a creation that is good. And he, because he is good and because his creation was good, has committed to set the world to rights. This is why the resurrection existed in the Jewish mind, largely. They believed in a resurrection because they said, if we believe that God is good and we believe that his creation is good, then in some sense, he needs to set the world to rights again. This is how God will make all things well. The consequences of abandoning it are catastrophic. You lose everything. Without it, we do not have a faith that is worth believing. But Paul is not saying all of this to be morbid or to depress us. 
he is actually implying the opposite of all of these things as he's giving this runoff of saying our faith is useless, those who are dead are lost. He's implying that the opposite is true. And so he's talking about the comfort of the resurrection, the comfort of the resurrection. Because Christ has been raised, those who have fallen asleep are not lost. Wonderful comfort to us. Because Christ has been raised, those who have already died have not been lost. We can still rejoice that they, at the last day, will receive eternal bodies fit to be with God forever. Because Christ has been raised, we are not, here's a good one, we are not still in our sins. A beautiful truth. The book of Romans, chapter 1, says the resurrection was God vindicating the name of Jesus Christ. When he was resurrected, God declared him to be the Son of God. Why? Because as he laid in the grave, he was that perfectly righteous one who had passed through the judgment waters, who had suffered the agony and the wrath of God that would have sent us to hell. And he had done it while remaining perfectly righteous. And God raised him from the dead because he was lying in the grave as that perfectly righteous king. He was declared to be the son of God. Because Christ has been raised, we can be assured that our sins are washed away. Finally, Paul says, or he implies, that we are not to be pitied above all men. We do not need the pity of the world because we are not fashioning our lives and living according to this risen and exalted Lord as if it were a lie. It is true. Jesus Christ has been raised. There is the comfort in the resurrection. And this is what comforts us as we look forward to the age to come. And some people will say, well, that's just pie in the sky. C.S. Lewis would say in response to that, so what if it is? So what if it is pie in the sky? Because if pie in the sky is real, then it must be faced and considered. He was responding to a criticism that said that people who preach the gospel, they're not worried enough about the issues of this world because it's just pie in the sky. If their hope is something other than this age, then they won't be concerned enough with the problems of this world. C.S. Lewis says, first of all, that's not true. Secondly, if pie in the sky is real, then it needs to be regarded as real just like anything else. It's not an escapism. It's not a shrug of the, sh- of the shoulders at the problems of this life. It is realizing this, as First Peter tells us, that we have been born again to a living hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This world is no cakewalk, but the beauty of the resurrection is that all of those outside of Christ are engaging in living toward death. Terrible reality. But if you know Christ, if he is Savior, you engage in living toward resurrection. It's a completely different orientation, living towards resurrection. Our creator has not made us for death. He has made us for life. In the book Dante's Inferno, above the gates of hell, it says, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. That's where there's no hope. But in this world, no matter how hard it gets, no matter what kinds of terrible things any of us have to face in the valley of the shadow of death, we have hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is why Peter goes on to say, rejoice 
if even now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials. Rejoice, because all things will be well. If it were not so, if God were were not committed to setting the world to rights, we could throw a big pity party for ourselves, for all of the time that we are wasting. But as it is, pie in the sky, or what other people would call pie in the sky, gives us a way to deal with our finitude and our fallenness, that we can hold all of these things and say, but God, just as we read that, but God raised him from the dead, we can say, but God will set all things right, to give us a way to deal with wars and rumors of wars, to give us a way to deal with cancer and with radiation, to give us a way to deal with unspeakable evil and unfathomable pain. For I am confident that the sufferings of this life are not worthy of being compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. What does pie in the sky look like? It looks like this. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Run to Jesus Christ. Run to him. He is our representative. He is our righteousness. He is our resurrection. Trust in him. Be patient in suffering. Rejoice in hope. Christ is risen indeed. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, We thank you for the eternal hope that you have given to us by which we can be patient in suffering, by which we can rejoice, by which we can be bound together in your love, your fellowship, by welcoming us into that fellowship which you have had with the Son and the Spirit from all eternity. Thank you the resurrection of Christ. Thank you for our resurrection. May our hearts, our lives, and our loves be shaped around that reality. In Christ's name, amen. Let us sing number 358.